Jero Nurses Tales from the Front is made possible thanks to support from the Center for Education and Research on Aging at the University of the Fraser Valley and the Gerontological Nurses Association of British Columbia. Welcome back to Jero Nurses Tales from the Front. Our guest in this episode is UBC's Dr. Jennifer Bombush. And here are your hosts, two women who spend approximately one minute and 37 seconds per week wondering if there is a synonym for thesaurus. It's Lillian Hung and Shelley Canning. Hello, everyone. This is Juro Nurses, Tales from the Front, where we want to share inspirational, often innovative, unique stories, some of the secrets, experience of our Juro nurses who work in the province. So uh, we're really excited today to have Dr. Jennifer Bombush as our guest for this episode. And Jennifer is an associate professor of nursing at UBC. She is the CIHR chair for sex and gender. I'm not sure if I have the title quite right. Um, She directs a really robust research program on healthcare delivery and nursing practice with older adults. She's a strong focus on long-term residential care, including the family perspective, their contributions to care delivery. Um, She also has a focus on well-being for individuals with intellectual disabilities and their families. She's an expert in critical ethnography um, and practice close research. She's committed to community-based research principles through active engagement of individuals, clinicians, service providers, and organizations. And I know she's super busy, so we're very thankful you've had time for us. And I've probably missed a bunch of things because I know you're busy in many directions. So welcome, Jennifer, and thank you. Thanks to you both for having me. This is the highlight of my month, maybe my year, to get to be on the podcast. So I'm very excited to chat with you today. Thank you, Jennifer. We are just very absolutely delighted to have you to join us to talk about your experience. You're a real journal nurse. I hope so. (laughs) One of the things we'd like to do is start with maybe your beginning place and then who knows where we're going to go. But everybody so far has been able to share with us their starting place. So how did you come to be a journal nurse? So I've been a nurse now for um, just over 25 years, which is pretty um, hard to believe because it's gone by, it feels super fast. When I was um, going into nursing school, I thought that I was going to love maternity. And I got to my maternity placement and it was nice, but I really didn't like it. And the reason I didn't like it is because I got to see people for a day. And that was it. And it came after my rotation in medicine. And what I really loved about medicine is you could be there for six to 12 weeks and you had the same people every time and you really got to know them. And I also came to realize at that time when other people around me were saying, oh, I don't like working with older people. All they want to do is tell me their stories and it takes forever and it's so awful. I was like, I love the stories. And I'm really terrible with machines. So 
I thought this is for me to work with older people in a place where there's no machines because we have no funding for machines and we just do things creatively with gravity. That's where I belong. And so um, it was a really natural fit. And my, I, I think in retrospect now, when I think back on it, I grew up and our grandma lived in my house and I grew up in a family where even from when I was a small child, everyone in my family were caregivers. And my grandma had looked after her mom in her house and her sister who was disabled. And it was just a natural part of our family to do that kind of caregiving. And I didn't realize that wasn't natural to all families. And so, yeah, I found my home in long-term care and I absolutely loved it. I loved working with care aides, having a team, um, and just being able to be with people at that part of their life where they're in the end part of their life and we're not in a rush and we just want it to be meaningful. Right. And, um, I worked in other settings as well. I worked in acute care and I worked in community, but I always came back to long-term care because that was just where my love was. And that's where my heart belonged. It's so funny that when you say maternity, then I can see our producer there and there's like, he's loving. <laughs> So many nurses, like they started, they wanted to go to maternity critical care. And then they find out, you know, it's, I, I hear you said about like getting known to people, relationships seems to be important to you. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. And I think that part of you go into nursing school and you think it's going to, you think you're going to go to the flashy part and you don't think that the old people are the flashy part. So and, and there's so much ageism in nursing education too, right? Like when I went to school, there wasn't even a final practicum course in gerontological nursing. So one of the professors at the time helped me to create it within the advanced mental health nursing course. So I think, um, what was your question, Lillian? <laughs> relationships. The relationships. <laughs> you know, I got, I did not do well in pathophysiology in first year. I almost didn't become a nurse. And yeah, I just love those conversations. Like I always remember my favorite shift is a three to 11 shift, the bedtime rounds, Oh, talking to people at bedtime, doing their meds, reminiscing with them, just, you know, being with people who are alone and then that dark of the evening right that's such a time when people really need did you go to each of the residents room to watch a little bit of tv when you're doing bedtime medications <laughs> well I worked at one of the um, old old time extended cares with four and six bedrooms so there was no time for the tv but the tv were in all the rooms of course so you watch the show as you went down the hallway and had our big med cart. And yeah, you just take your med cart in the room. There's four people. You have a chit chat and um, say goodnight to everybody. It was just, I loved but it. If it was 25 years ago, you were giving a little HS snack is my guess. And people oh. probably got a small <laughs> back rub, didn't they? Let me tell you, Shelly, when I worked at Mount St. Joe's 25 years ago, I had the keys to the kitchen if I was on night shift. <laughs> and we used to have, I worked in geriatric psychiatry there and it was wonderful. And we had one woman every night and, you know, they were there for months. It was a psych, it's kind of like a psychiatric mental health unit, um, acute care, 3 a.m. She'd be there and we'd have our warm cup of tea with milk and the warm milk. Yes. People would be getting their warm milk at bedtime. Um, so a lot of it for sure was not so much the folk, 
we had a lot of medications to give, but we would have other things too. Like they get this snack, they get this, this drink, this is what they like at bedtime. This is, and it was, you know, very detailed. Um, and yeah, and you had that opportunity, like when people, I think that people think we didn't have person-centered care 25 years ago. We had it. The architecture wasn't great. The architecture does not is not what makes person-centered care, right? And for me, I think it was those evenings where you were walking around. Some of the residents were up walking around. Um, nobody else was there. We'd all make popcorn and eat popcorn together. Like that to me was the epitome of person-centered care. Um, and you're done with the busyness of the day. And so even though the building was ugly and it wasn't all great and I, I'm romanticizing parts of it, I'm sure, but I fundamentally don't think that we weren't having aspects of person-centered care when I was doing my work all those years ago. Your focus was very much on the people though, wasn't it? Like the environment the old four bed and six bed rooms. I, I know that that environment is, is difficult. Um, yeah. But the actual care, the, I think folks were very focused on the people. The relationship. The relationship. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like even when you did your bar service at five o'clock, right? Like that's so fun and everybody comes by and you're serving the drinks and it. Yeah, to me, it was just one of the best parts of my nursing career were those evening shifts. And I was so young, didn't know a lot. The care aides taught me so much and really took care of me. They were phenomenal at their work. Um, and they knew everything about those people that they were taking care of, everything. And it was really clear that they were also passionate about their work and committed to what they were doing. So when we're looking ahead at, and I know I'm skipping ahead, but when we're looking at where we go in long-term care, what are the pieces from that beginning that we need to hold on to? Or, or is there anything from that beginning, like when you look ahead? So I'll tell you when I left working at, at the point of care was several well, quite a few years later, when I was working an evening shift, I was on the phone having to replace a staff person. I had a family member in crisis who wanted to talk to me, and I had another resident who was acutely ill and crashing. And I was the only RN in the building, close to 100 residents. And I just said to the executive director the next day, like, I can't practice safely here anymore. So I am done. I'm going to go do nursing is a career. You have so many options, right? And so it's a privilege for us to be able to say, you know, I, it's time for me to move on because I don't feel safe. So for me, the key aspect of how do we get back there is staffing levels. So back then we had, you know, inter we had people like almost personal care, intermediate, one, two, three, extended care. You had such a range of abilities with your residents that, um, some of the residents themselves were keeping tabs on things, right? Like they weren't all needing total and complete care. And so fast forward, and even when I was a director of care, um, you know, 
the needs of residents continued to increase, but we weren't seeing increases in staffing levels. We were actually seeing staffing levels sometimes going down, Mm -hmm. definitely plateaued. So for me, the one fundamental thing that we need to do is increase staffing levels, both with regulated nurses, RNs, LPNs, um, increasing the number of care aids. And then, and, you know, like the actual absolute picture perfect world would be have nurse practitioners who cover every site for the primary care needs of the residents. Yeah. I wonder, yeah, staffing absolutely probably the fundamental, most important. I wonder when you think back, like you have worked in the front, you know, you were a director of care and now you have done like many, many different roles, you know, top leadership. So how can you share, like when you think back, like, because the relationship sounds to be really important to you. Do you have like one unforgettable experience with a particular resident, an older person that, you know, that was really funny or really interesting? (laughs) There. First of all, I, I'll tell you a couple of things. One of the things is my daughter's name is Eleanor. And part of the reason she, there's a family reason she has that name, but one of the reasons it appeals to me so much is because I had so many wonderful residents named Eleanor in my career and they were all wonderful women. And I just was like, something about people named Eleanor, fabulous people. Um, the thing that always sticks to me was there was a resident named Florence and she's a tiny little woman. And she um, would reminisce with us when she was able to do reminiscing. She grew up in the Camby Street area of Vancouver. And she'd tell us these wonderful stories about what the city was like when she was growing up and what it looked like. And it was just amazing. But And when you did her, and she's always so kind and just really appreciative of the care. And when we would go to turn out the light, because I was the last in the room, she'd often say in a little voice, night, night, mom. And I'd say, night, night. And it was just at the point in nursing care where we were moving away from, I'm not even going to remember what it's called, real reality orientation or whatever, where we used to. And when I would teach about this, I'd say to students, like, around that time, some people would have said, you turn the light back on, you go back and you say, Florence, I'm not your mom but you're in a nursing home. This is your, is the, like, there'd be all your that. Your husband right? is dead. Everyone oh, is yeah. gone. Yeah. And that's what people would do. Um, and we were just coming into that phase of philosophy of care where we would not be doing that, where we'd go along with the person. And she was a person who oftentimes would live in the past and it was just wonderful to walk that with her and hear what, she had to say right and there is no point in turning those lights back on and that always to me was like this is the best of what care can be right like she's not agitated she doesn't need any medications she just needs somebody to say night night to her and that always sticks with me right like it's not um I used to have a little sign back when I probably have it somewhere in my house and it said Something about gerontological nursing is um, low-tech, high-touch nursing. Mm-hmm. And it is, and it's complex. And all the things that we share and say, those aren't easy things, right? I'm not, I'm responding to those situations in a purposeful way that is guided by my education and my practice and my knowledge, right? <laughs> um, but it is this amazing 
high touch place where you don't have the machines to fix and a machine is not going to save the day for you. Uh, It's all about relational interactions with people. So to me, that was a really working with Florence. It's just lovely that dynamic she had and, but she could also switch right for staff that didn't get that piece. So for me, it always stays with me. Like if you treat people using your expertise in the way that they need, you know, we don't need all those restraints. We don't need all those medications. We, for so many of them, it's just about relationships and care. Is it like empathy to be able to meet where the person's at? Absolutely. Instead of forcing them to come to our reality. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you look at how culture changed, what the goal of it was, yes, it was to embed that so that it wasn't just a one-off. It wasn't just, you know, who's your nurse today or who's your carry today and you're going to get it. Mm -hmm. It actually would become part of the system. Yeah. And I think some places, especially with updated architecture, were really starting to capture that prior to the pandemic. And then we got the pandemic, right? And so I think we are really like almost touching it, almost there. But can we do a high tech, high touch, <laughs> high tech, like nice air conditioning, virtual reality? <laughs> You know, Lillian, when I see that YouTube video once in a while of the people where they've created the train and they're yeah. sitting on the train and the and yeah. the countryside's going by, I'm like, yeah. I could sit there all day. Perfectly happy <laughs> like bringing drinks. a cup of tea. <laughs> um, or like on the bicycles with the... So absolutely. I mean, I'm not saying we need to be stuck in time. Um, and if we could have all those things, wouldn't it be amazing, right? And it depends what the tech is for. So I worked in in oncology and we talked about high touch, high tech, but we meant lots of machines delivering medications, right? You know, chemo and symptom management, that kind of tech. But you're thinking about tech that is focused on quality of life and and maybe bridging some of those that time travel that people do, right? Yes, quality of life. <laughs> So Jennifer, can you tell us a little bit about like, like you mentioned about, you know, when you work in long-term care, that's like years ago. What about now? Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do right now? You must have like a whole bunch of exciting projects. You know, yeah, I'm never short of ideas. That's part of my issue in life. (laughs) Um, So I'm still, because my research chair is really focused on caregiving, a lot of the current research I've been doing is with families and community um, to really see, because as much as I love long-term care, at any point in time, there are only about 5 to 7% of the population live there. And nobody wants to live there. So I work for a long time focused on improving that setting and I think my work is more focused now on how do we improve care in the community so that people might not need to go into a care home or really minimize the time that they're in a care home so the work I've been doing is with families um, who have people with who are living with dementia at home but it's been really rough because of the pandemic 
Mm-hmm. So, and then we also did a study, I think just, just an urgency to share the lived experience. So my team also did a study with family members of people who live in long-term care homes and about that experience for them. And we're just at the point of starting to publish some of the findings from those studies. So that has been keeping me and all the other kinds of projects I do um, with the disability community pretty busy. So the role of the family is an interesting one because they have to be part of the team in a particular way because they're not healthcare professionals. So they're not the, the LPN, RN, care aide or physician or NP. It's, they're not that group, but they're absolutely critical. Although sometimes we struggle to figure out how they fit. So you've done, I know a lot of thinking around how do we engage family in ways that are meaningful to them? What's, what's your thinking about the best way to do that, to engage family, whether it's in long-term care or community settings? Because I know, I mean, we had family who the most obvious was not being allowed to come in. So, and and that's a, a particular situation or around COVID, but it also speaks to the value we put on them being able to come in. That's why it was so easy, I think, for us to to shut the door, right? So well, where do we sure. go from here? So I guess a few things. One is my little soapbox about um, there's a reason we keep the role of families informal in the system because it allows us to close the door if there's no formal mechanism for families to keep that door open. So it works, you know, you always have to think about that classic question, like who who's benefiting from this? Well, who's benefiting from it is the people that shut the door um, because families do play a myriad of important roles in care homes, not just for their own relative, but for other residents. You know, you always have that family member who, you know, knows what everybody gets at snack time and can actually do it. So staff can have a paid break. Um, And they're also vigilant about concerns in care. And I think that um, keeping the role informal works for those who are in power and want to hold the power. I think for me, I mentioned at the beginning, you know, I come from what I've now realized is a caregiving family. So for me and my family, it's normal, like to look after each other, to get in there, roll our sleeves up. If someone's in the hospital, when my sister had cancer, um, 10 years ago, to me, it was normal to go over to her house and help her have a shower And I think that was the point in time in which I realized, like, I'm not sure everybody would do this. And so one of the first things we have to realize, and this is where family nursing and assessment of families comes in so important. And we've so much dropped that right in care. But saying to people, who is your family? To say to those people who they say is their family, like, what's your understanding of the situation? What do you need? We think of all the people coming to care who don't have a representative agreement. So, you know, even having those conversations is really hard in some families. Who's going to make those decisions? Well, I have five kids and they're all fighting over it. Or I have nobody. Or I have kids, but I sure as heck don't want them making decisions for me. 
Um, so we need, and, and so it was interesting because when I started my research career and you'd put in a research grant, families provide care, the reviewers would be like, how dare you say that families should be doing this? We shouldn't be expecting families to do this. And that has really changed to now it's quite normal and accepted to say, yes, families provide care. So if they're doing it, how are we supporting and what infrastructure do we have in place? So yeah. one of my studies was co-creating workshops with families in long-term care. And, you know, we did a needs assessment with families. We said, what do you need to know about? And they said, well, I went to all the Alzheimer's Society sessions and they were great, but they talked about early phases of dementia. But my relative is now in the advanced stage. I want to know what death looks like. I want to be prepared. And we don't do that. Or I want to have a session with the pharmacist and know what all these medications are. We don't do that. We wrote a really nice paper about care conferences um, and gave some really practical recommendations because it was really obvious that families were part of the audience and not part of the people participating. Afterwards, I got feedback from one of a site that shall remain nameless from the healthcare professionals who said, how dare you do that? We have created a wonderful care plan structure and process. It works great for us. And we're like, okay, well, all we did was talk to people and they told us it's not working for them. So to me, if they're part of the group providing care, we need to provide them with some professional development too, within services, with education, with guidance. You know, even my dad years ago, when he was going to his mom's care conference, he's like, well, what would I even say there? Like tell people, it's not a secret and it shouldn't be a secret. Like, and don't do it all on the first day you meet them. And that same goes for home care. Like when you go in for an assessment, the first time you meet a family, that's a huge anxiety producing experience. And it's just information overload, experience overload. So I think that we could do so much more around providing tangible supports for families, um, particularly because now our system kind of admits it and says, well, we need them or we're going to break. Well, then what are we providing them with to be able to do the job that we're expecting them to do for free? So I think you could tell I'm kind of passionate on this topic, but that's sort well, of in those, a nutshell. Those kinds of supports, those things that you're suggesting are not big they're not big asks and they're not huge costs. You know, they're, they're, the cost of doing that doesn't require you uh, creating a whole, a whole bunch of, um, oh, I don't know, I'm just struggling for words here. But, you know, it's, it's people teaching, sharing that kind of knowledge that we have as professional caregivers and, and sharing it in a way that it's going to be understood and then utilized and meaningful to family. So is it about like attitude, like how the people working there see the family as outsiders? Yeah. If that's what it is, like what will change that? But one of the things that I sometimes talk about too is, you know, when I was a director of care, I had a chronological wait list. People would come for tea. I'd invite them, my top five. I'd be like, you know what? You're in my top of my group. Come for tea. Let's do a tour. 
And we'd be talk about it and say, you know, are you sure you want to come here? What's, you know, ask, answer all the questions. And now what happens is many people have spent time in the hospital. Terrible place, terrible place for frail older adults. So when I talk about this with, you know, providers, I say, you, you have people coming in who have experienced profound trauma. And we're not dealing with that trauma. We're like, welcome. Today is your welcome day. And, and tomorrow's your bath. <laughs> are like walking wounded. They do, you know. So I, in one of our current papers, um, the COVID paper that will be coming out, is starting to introduce the idea of trauma-informed care. And I talk about this and I say, you have to actually acknowledge that these people have been traumatized Mm -hmm. and that they're coming into this with trauma and honor that. Because I think where the staff get their back up is they feel like, well, these people are so angry or they're so demanding. Well, if you've just had a relative in the hospital for two months and you come to a care home and you get a bill for medications because it's a nonprofit and pills aren't covered and nobody ever told you this you'd feel really angry too sometimes those bills are really big no one's told them they have to pay for these medications why does someone need this much medication for their bowels they don't they didn't need it when they were at home it's like we're in a cycle of repetition right and so until we really start to accept the families are traumatized. The resident is traumatized. Some of them have never gone back to say goodbye to their home. How we have a system that doesn't allow people to go through that process and say goodbye to their things. And so you have staff who are traumatized and they're dealing with people who are really sick. They don't know what to do. They haven't been educated how to deal with people who are having complex behaviors They're looking after a lot of people who are dying. They don't get any bereavement support. It is, you know, unpleasant for everyone. And you throw them all together and it's just continuing the trauma until that person dies. And then the family is still completely shell-shocked from what happened. So what's the role of nursing education in creating that kind of awareness? So I think ageism within nursing faculty is a huge issue. So the students come in, I mean, we all grew up in an ageist society, everybody. And where we shy away, I think, from that caregiving piece, because that if you need care, you're, you're old and it's icky. Um, and so... That is a really hard thing to do because faculty who are gerontological nurses are typically in the minority of faculty. We can't do all of the work. I remember Kathy McGilton, I think it was, who told me, I think it was her, used to sneak stuff under the door of faculty offices to try and sort of spread the word of gerontological nursing. But, you know, it comes through in everything like, oh, sorry, you got this placement or, oh, sorry, the last preceptorship we have is in long-term care. Sorry about that. Sorry. Um, Sorry. I'm not sure you're going to get the experience you need to be a competent nurse when you graduate. So sorry. Um, And it's, 
it it's yeah and so that's where you know it comes from and then the nurses get out into practice and I tell them this and they all I'm sure want to just shoot darts at me sometimes which is probably why I don't teach in our undergraduate program that much because <laughs> I say you know y'all are going to be looking after old people you're going to look after them in critical care in the emergency in the OR in every unit of the adult hospital and if you work in a town that doesn't have a BC women's or a children's hospital you're going to look after off-service old people on your pediatric and maternity units and oh I used to start off with that it was just like not good but (laughs) it's because I feel angry because this is who we're caring for so why are we only spending 12 weeks of a nursing program talking about it? If we do, if that. If we do, yeah. Um, you know, years ago, I saw a presentation at um, a conference, and I think it was Dalhousie at the time. They had this amazing partnership where they had students from the university, students from their local LPN college, students from their local care aid program, and they did placements as a group. So if you were a nursing student and you were going into a care home to do your placement, you weren't with other RN students. You were leading a team of LPN and care aid students. Doesn't that make sense? What an amazing learning experience. Um, so I feel like it gets so rooted in from nursing school and when I do teach and you know I'll say to students anytime come to my office you know contact me I'll have like one or two out of 100 say come to me and be like I really like working with old people please don't tell anybody but can you help me <laughs> and so then we'll we'll be like of course we will help you um but it's really hard and I mean I worked with lots of fantastic nurses in long-term care who came to it after careers and other specialties fabulous Absolutely. That's another way. Um, But I think with our students, it's really with our faculty colleagues where the work begins. So totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. If there's one thing that you can do with a magic wand, so what would be that one thing to change place? In nursing education? Yeah. Just some in nursing students. (laughs) I would put... um, Gerontological nursing is our most complex, advanced clinical course. Should never be in the in the first term. I mean, there's lots of literature to support this from Canada and the states, and I've done lots of the research myself, um, so that they understand that complexity. It should not be their first experience, and then to do creative things like mixing it up with other programs, so they're getting a realistic experience of what is the role. Um, so you could you could create a really neat advanced clinical course in gerontological nursing that would be totally appropriate for every student. I mean, you could get nurse, you could have a class on critical care in your older person. You could have a class. Everybody thinks the only place to see old people is in care homes and in home care. So it should. So that that is what the evidence continues to tell us, but programs refuse to do it, right? Because that's not where, again, the faculty who aren't gerontological nurses perceive it to belong in the hierarchy of nursing specialties. Uh, 
we know gerontological nursing is at the bottom of the hierarchy with mental health and they compete with each other for which one is the lowest. Oh no. Oh yeah. In the literature, in the research, right? And this is what it shows. And so that's part of the issue. And so you're always in this uphill battle to um, transform the educational experience for students. Yeah, somehow getting them to have that lens wherever they're going. So I I look at one of my close colleagues who teaches on the surgical unit. And because we've been good friends, now she's kind of, she's shifted a bit in her thinking. And she's suddenly looking at the nine-year-old hip replacement and not seeing a hip replacement. She's seeing this is a 90-year-old hip replacement. So what do we do to start thinking like a Gero nurse would think? Yep, absolutely. Because it's acute care. It's not long-term care. Yeah. It's like seeing the person first. Wow. Well, this is, uh, has been like a really wonderful time. And uh, we would like to thank Jennifer, take the time and uh, come to chat with us. Do you have any other secrets that you would like to tell us before? <laughs> I do not have any secrets, um, but I just want to thank you again for doing this. It is so fun. The time flies by because you're talking about gerontological nursing and you blink and the time is gone. Well, hopefully we're moving to, you know, this is a time where maybe we move, move the, the needle and, and things start things start to fall into place a little better and and make more sense. We'd also like to thank everybody out there for taking the time to listen. If you can think of someone that we should chat with on an upcoming episode of Gerald Nurses, please email us at lillian.hung at ubc.ca or shelly.canning at ufv.ca. So until the next episode, we hope you all stay safe and stay healthy. And we hope to talk to you soon. And that's the show.